0: back. We'll be right back. back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Case, and this is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life, all the deepest questions with experts in those areas. I love thinking about cool stuff, and you're invited to come think with me. On this episode, we're going to be talking about uh, an argument for God's existence, and particularly one that I did not like. I, I didn't like it at all, but People have been working on it a lot lately, and it's pretty interesting. So it's the argument from common consent. And um, sometimes you'll hear people say this is a logical fallacy and this and that. And I'm really excited to get into it with uh, Dr. John John, or Jonathan uh, Matheson. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of North Florida. And we were just talking about how uh, Florida's weird. They say north instead of like northern. I went to northern Illinois, right? But they have north Florida, south Florida. Um, that's neither here nor there. I don't know if we're going to settle that debate here today. But we're going to be talking about comments, consent, and why thinking, um, considering the amount of people who believe in God uh, is is uh, evidence for God's existence. So we'll get into all that good stuff. Before we do, though, I want to thank everyone over on Patreon who's making this podcast happen. If this podcast is one of your favorites, Top five, even top 15 if you don't want to see this disappear and me um, yeah disappear off the map off the map of, of YouTube, then uh, please consider becoming a patreon patron. You can find a link in the description wherever you're getting this YouTube <laughs> wherever you're getting this podcast at, I'm having a hard time today. Please consider uh, supporting it. This is brought to you by viewers like you. So uh, without further ado, let's jump in and talk about common consent and the existence of God. John, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man.
1: Happy to be here, Parker. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. Uh, so we just uh, discovered beforehand that you were, uh, you're a TEDS grad as well. And so I was like, I knew I liked you for some reason. Um, <laughs> so can you, can you regale us? Like uh, what did you do your work on uh, there at TEDS? Yeah, it's
1: a, it was a while ago. So I was there, uh, I think 2000 to 2002. So <laughs> To me, that still seems like it was like a couple of years ago, but <laughs> according to the calendar, it's that's 20 right. years ago. So that's a long time. Yeah. Um, let's see. So I, I did an MA there in Christian thought. So I took pretty much every philosophy class, philosophy of religion class that I, could, that I could take. So that's where I really actually got into epistemology. Um, hmm. So the first epistemology class I took uh, was there. We read uh, Warranted Christian Belief and a couple oh, other nice. uh, kind yeah. of. Epistemological classics, and uh, that got me that got me hooked in. So from from then on, it was uh, all philosophy, all epistemology. So
0: wow, man! Well, so so what did you do after TEDs?
1: After there, uh, I got married, and then uh, went to Madison, Wisconsin, for a year, where my wife went was uh, getting her MSW, and then I got an MA in philosophy at Wisconsin, Milwaukee, just okay a little bit north of there. Yeah. Uh, and then from there I went to get my PhD at University of Rochester. Nice. So did that, and then uh, ended up here in Jacksonville, and uh, been here been here since.
0: Nice. So uh, was your was your dissertational work in epistemology as well?
1: Yep. So I did my dissertation on uh, the epistemic significance of disagreement. So mm. thinking about. And it has it bears some relation to what we're going to talk about today with common consent, but it's, again, it has to do with how other people's beliefs affect the the rationality of your belief.
0: Um, yeah. Well, uh, so something I picked up from your essay, uh, and again, I should have said this earlier, folks. Sorry about that. But um, we're we're going to be discussing his paper in Contemporary Arguments in Natural Theology, um, the new book, super expensive book, uh, but really good book, um, by uh, edited by Colin Ruloff and Peter Horben. I think is how you pronounce it. Um, and so uh, his, his argument, uh, his chapter in there is the argument from common consent. And um, while I was reading this, you had talked about disagreement literature. So that makes sense that, that you did work on that. And you said, I, I did an episode on disagreement with uh, my friend, Nate Loffer. So if anyone does know about that, you can go check that out. And, and I've learned that disagreement um, serves as, as ev- evidence against your position. If someone is your epistemic peer or whatever, and disagrees with you, but you said agreement should also count uh, as evidence. And I, for whatever reason, had never thought of that before, never heard that before. And it was really like illuminating. It it blew my mind. I was in the coffee shop the other day. I was like, oh, okay, agreement should be able to help me if disagreement counts.
1: Yeah, no, I I think that's right. So, I mean, I think uh, the significance of agreements gotten a lot less attention uh, Hmm. in epistemology than disagreement has. Um, But I think the very same considerations point to agreement um carrying some epistemic weight um so what yeah what got me thinking about it was uh disagreement so you know when uh colin approached me about writing writing this essay i actually hadn't really thought much about uh the common consent argument but saw some saw some connections to things i've been thinking about uh in terms of disagreement and uh so that drew me into this argument and so it was it was fun to think about it like as you as you said this argument doesn't get very, very good publicity. It could use yeah. a, it could use some better PR. Um, but what I found kind of fascinating about it is how it touches on so many big hot button issues in philosophy of religion. So yeah, it, it was a lot of fun to think about for that reason as well.
0: Yeah. So um, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's interesting. So maybe we could just flesh out like what is the common consent argument? I talked about it a little bit um, the other day with uh, my former professor, and Ted's professor, Harold Netland, he he's kind of broached it in his new book on uh, re- religious experience. And he's working on how we can use religious experience, how it might be used uh, in po- in a positive case for the existence of God. He mentioned it might be used in a common consent type argument. And so um, even since then, I've, I've been more open to this argument. But it's basically like, uh, you know, if uh, it's, it's rational for you to believe in the existence of God because there are so many others who believe in the existence of God. Does that, does that sound right, or do you want to flesh it out a little bit more than that? Uh, just a, the the summary core argument.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's um, that's pretty much it for like the basics. So the basic idea is that we gain a reason to believe that God exists based on so many other people's belief that God exists. Okay. Um, yeah, and so like you said, it it does it does kind of sound like cheating a little bit, uh, in part because it's not it's not really thinking about well, you might think there's any direct reason to think that God exists. So it's not, it's not using reasons that are about God directly, but about other people and what other people think about whether God exists.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. So, so this is um, something that, that was new to me. Epistemology is so hard, dude. <laughs> Analytic <laughs> epistemology is uh, <laughs> it's just wild. Um, informal epistemology, all that stuff. So, so someone's uh, evidence of evidence is evidence. Is like, yeah. uh, is like a is like a common uh, thing. If, that was my
1: dissertation advisor's uh, slogan. So Richard Feldman, I think. Oh, was, are you serious? Was the, I, was the
0: coiner of that of that first? I didn't know you did it under Feldman. That's insane, yeah. dude. Yeah, he like pretty much invented this whole thing with a single essay, right? Yeah, so I, I consider myself
1: uh, a benefactor of some philosophical luck. I just kind of happened to. I mean, it just happened to go to Rochester. I obviously I wanted to work with uh, Feldman and Earl Connie, but the disagreement stuff happened or his essay kind of happened and it kind of took off while I was there. And so I got to kind of get in on the, get on the, get in on the topic right as it was kind of launching. So I think I, I owe a lot of where I ended up just to that sort of like accident of uh, circumstance.
0: Yeah. Holy cow, man. Yeah. I was going to bring up Feldman. That's, that's wild. So, um, when it comes to common consent, I, 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 Do do other people need to have the evidence, right? So you're collecting your your evidence in the common consent is not direct evidence like you're talking about. It's not the, it's not like facts. It's really just it's everyone else seems to have evidence or everyone else believes, and I'm taking that to be evidence. What if none of them had evidence? Would that destroy my evidence, or is it just the fact that so many people do believe? Do they actually have to have some kind of content uh, that that they're holding on to some kind of fact, or does that not matter for the argument?
1: Good. Um, well, I think it, it's uh, it's a little bit tricky. So I think it matters what it's rational for us to believe about those people. So if it was wow. rational for us to believe that they believed it without any evidence, mm-hmm. then I think the argument would be in trouble, right? Because um, their believing it wouldn't serve as any sort of reason, I think, for us to believe it. But in general, people believe things because they have reasons to believe it. Like that's, yeah. you know, I mean, Humans have their cognitive flaws for sure, but uh, in general, we tend to be uh, uh, rational creatures. And so when we believe something, we tend to have some evidence that it's true. And so, yeah, the idea here is that people's belief serves as like a placeholder or, or higher order evidence that there is this evidence out there. Or that the correct way to evaluate that evidence is that it supports, in this case, um, God's
0: existence. Okay. Would it would it change if, uh, if only one person had the actual Like evidence, and everyone else was relying on that one person's evidence. You know, sometimes you see this in studies and they're flawed because they're all actually. I I see this in turtles, in turtle uh, surveys and stuff. I don't, I'm kind of a turtle freak and it's, it's a weird thing. But if everyone's pulling from the same data and they're all purported, you know, it's ballooning up and it's like, well, they all came from the same thing. So that really messes with the survey. It was one person's work. Good.
1: Yeah. So I think there's a couple, a couple ways to to disentangle that. So I think there's two ways you can think of it. So I think the fact that they're using the same set of data, that's not necessarily a problem because I mean, one of the issues is how do we interpret the data or what does it support? And so finding out that multiple people interpret the data in the same way, I think strengthens our reason to think Uh, that that data does support what they take it to support. Okay. So we're compare a case where you have one person interpreting the data one way versus 50 people interpreting that same data that way. I think yeah. your your epistemic position is stronger in the second case. It's still just one set of, it's still the same singular set of data, mm-hmm. but you have better reason to think that that data supports what they take it to, given that so many people have evaluated it in that way. Yeah. So I think that's one case where one sort of input or one set of data can be bolstered up by agreement but the case as you kind of first set it out was a case where like everyone believes it because this one person believes it. Yeah. And that's different. So I think that, that would be a problem. So if everyone, if everyone sort of, or everyone who believed that say God existed just believed it because this original person believed it and everyone else just kind of believes it on their say, so um, then I think the numbers matter or matter a lot less because it's, they're not independent. So one, one sort of, um, issue that both the disagreement literature and the common consent um, argument have to deal with is the independence of opinion and that's kind of that's a tricky thorny issue mm. uh, you know so you could think about you know think of an analogous case with say um, you know with climate change there's you know 90 percent plus climate scientists believe that climate change is happening so that sort of agreement Is taken, and I think rightly to give us good reason to believe that uh, the climate's changing. Mm -hmm. Now, if it turns out that all those climate scientists just believe that because there's one sort of like, I don't know, (laughs) the mega original climate scientist, and they're just believing it because that person thought so, well, then the agreement among the climate scientists would count for way less. Yeah. Um, So I, I do think the independence of the opinions matters. The more independent they are the better the strength of the evidence. Okay. Um, but how exactly we should think about independence, I think is, is is tricky and hard because using the climate scientist example again, it's not that all those climate scientists are working in complete isolation from each other, right? right. They're still using each other's work and referencing each other's studies. So they they aren't completely independent, but that sort of independence seems not problematic. Yeah. How exactly we sort of, you know, make a principal distinction there, I think, is a tough, uh, is a tough, thorny issue. But I think we can point to at least clear cases of where independence um, is, is harmful and, and when it's not.
0: OK, so uh, one thing I've learned as I'm uh, as I've been studying philosophy is uh, like the 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 utility of sororities paradoxes where you can just bring them in all over the place. It's kind of like a short shortcut for a lot of thinking. But uh, this is common consent. And so like, how do we determine what's common? Is it, is it 51% um, or is there, is there an actual point or is it a vague kind of, you know, maybe over 80% and then we can have more evidence, but it doesn't count if it's 83% or something. What, what do you make of that?
1: Yeah, good. That is a, I think it's a tricky issue. Um, and I mean, I, I would have, so I would have thought so here, here would be my initial thought that I, I don't think is right. But I, mm-hmm. I would have thought that, like, you know, 50% is an important threshold, that over 50%, um, something important changes, and then the higher it goes, thing, things get better. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of now starting to think that even less than 50% could be, um, could be an important difference. So, mm. uh, like, the analogy I use uh, in the papers with uh, recycling beliefs. Right? Yeah, that's so, great. Mm-hmm. um you know the the way i far too often come to believe that today is recycling pickup day is by seeing um my neighbors recycling out <laughs> um already mm-hmm. and if you think about that case does there have to be 50 percent of my neighbors that have their recycling mm-hmm. out in order for me to believe it's recycling day uh and i don't think so in that case so um obviously if it's just one kind of neighbor i'm not going to get to. uh too uh, concerned or think it's recycling day, but it seems like the number can be short of 50% and it still be sort of like the best explanation of that belief is that it's true that today is recycling day. Mm -hmm. So I think what might be doing the work more than the actual numbers is thinking about what the best explanation is for the, the data that we're seeing. And so the data... If the data is just say forty percent agreement amongst whatever else, the best explanation of that could be the truth of that belief. Yeah, uh, and I think if that's the case, then 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 that agreement um, would serve as uh, an evidential basis or a good reason to have that belief.
0: That's such a good point, and and uh, I, I do really like the uh, recycling analogy because I'm I'm the same way. I have a a pretty long st- um, stretch to get to my house. And uh, it's just houses on one side, and it's just if you're there's no real need unless you live there to, to go down this way because it's kind of a dead end. And so like I'll go past and see everyone's recycling out, and some sometimes it's not recycling day, but some of them are f- forgotten. They brought it out, and uh, I, I wonder if there's like a if there's a. Again, epistemology is so hard. If there's a distinction between like being good evidence and being being rational to believe, like if if I see one or two of them, it might be rational for me to be like, oh yeah, today must be Thursday because garbage day is on Friday and they put it out the night before. Um, But then if I if I keep going and I don't see one else, yeah, maybe that belief was rational, but now it's it doesn't serve as like good evidence. I have better evidence that you know if we're doing inference to the best explanation that those two were mistaken and it's, it was a holiday. And so it's actually not Friday, but it's going to be Saturday. Is there a distinction between like rational versus like rational is like base, base level? Like it's rational. You can believe it. It's you, you aren't uh, flouting your epistemic uh, duties, but it's not great evidence.
1: Yeah. Okay. Good. I hate the word rational because <laughs> in part, because it's uh, it can be used in so many different ways. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, so I, I think there's a sense in rational of rational where we just kind of mean like that's not crazy. Right. Yes, so if, right. if we if we think about um and I think of the analogy with like sports predictions. Right? So you can predict who's gonna win the Super Bowl next year. And lots of those um predictions could be rational, but none of them are like more reasonable than not, or mm. uh the evidence on balance supports. It's just like, well, that's not ludicrous. Whereas if you <laughs> yeah. said like the Jaguars will win the Super Bowl. That would be ridiculous, and you you would you would lose your airtime, and you would yeah. you wouldn't get to uh, defend your case. Yeah. So I mean, I think there's like a sense of rational that's well below even supported by the evidence. Okay. Um, so I think, I think the sense of rational, I'm an evidentialist, so I think the sense of rational that epistemologists typically care about just is tied to supported by your evidence. Okay. So in, in the cases you were describing it, I mean, the way I would um, unpack that is when you see those first couple recycling bins, at that point, your evidence strongly supports, let's say, believing that it's recycling day. And then as you keep going, you're adding to that um, stockpile of evidence and you're getting more and more evidence that's sort of going against, uh, your original belief. And so I think as you're going, it's, it changes what it's rational for you to believe, but it changes because of your evidential situation has, has changed, right? The original evidence still supports what it supported, but now it's just sort of outweighed or counterbalanced by, by stronger evidence to the, to the
0: other side. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's really good. So, um, just, uh, as an aside, here, um, are you, do you take a side on internalism, externalism? Are you an internalist as well as evidentialist, or
1: in epistemology? Yeah, I, uh, I'm a yeah, definitely an internalist. Okay,
0: well, yeah. everyone, clutch your pearls. Uh, that that might be evidence of evidence. <laughs> now, I, I recently <laughs> come to consider myself more of an internalist as well. So uh, that's cool. That's cool to hear. I, I'm sure some people listening were, would be really interested in that. Hopefully they don't discount, uh, the externalists don't discount the rest of, of what you say because of that. Um, yeah.
1: Well, I mean, one. I'll just, one interjection. So one thing that I like about um, the disagreement literature, I haven't thought about if it applies as much to the agreement part of it. But what's nice about the disagreement literature is, whether you're an internalist or an externalist about what provides justification for your beliefs. I think what's what the disagreement uh, literature shows is that discovering a disagreement gives you a defeater um, for that justification or takes it away. And so even if you're an externalist about what provides justification, um, almost all externalists still leave room for defeaters, for evidence to kind of take it away. And so I think the disagreement um what's uh appealing about the disagreement debate is you don't have to be an internalist or an externalist to kind of feel the pull of the the problem there because if it's a defeater it's a defeater for whether you're an internalist or an externalist yeah i'm not sure that carries over to the agreement part because there we're looking for like positive uh positive justification yeah um so i don't know if an externalist can give the sort of same spin um I mean, it is kind of funny, I think, how often externalists still do want to talk about evidence and evidence mattering. So it's not it's not like if you're an externalist, you, you suddenly cease thinking or caring about evidence altogether. So I think right. even there, externalists should be, you know, have have open ears and. Uh, yeah, and be that's okay right. Here. Yeah.
0: yeah, that's great. Well, OK, so you um, another way, another way to, to couch the argument is uh, human opinions provide good, good evidence for God. Yeah. Um, but uh you make this distinction they don't it doesn't like establish his existence it's not because everyone has this opinion that God exists therefore he exists uh, despite maybe what Jordan Peterson might say or, or someone uh, following like uh in, in that school of thought no we're we're couching that it's just that um this this is evidence that 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 uh that God does exist and you you say look this is an epistemological argument not a a metaphysical argument and yeah. I think that's kind of what, what brought up the the uh, rational, uh, is, is it a rational belief type thing? Uh, this kind of carries over from, I used to be really hardcore into uh, transcendental arguments and trying to make one work because I thought they were so cool. And then, you know, Barry Stroud kind of slapped me over the head and stuff. And um, there's like this distinction between a conceptual transcendental argument and a world directed one, whether this just tells you about what you must think versus uh, telling you about reality in and of itself. And it's kind of like turning Kant against Kant himself. Sure. And, and I and I I wonder if if um that kind of distinction follows into this argument as well. And someone might say, well, look, yeah, great, this gives you positive evidence uh, in an epistemological fashion, but it doesn't really tell you about the nature of reality because you can't. You're you're trying to bridge this epistemological gap into metaphysics, but it that's not the type of argument. Well, how, how do you respond to to that type of? I guess it's like a Kantian yeah. claim or something, right?
1: yeah good. I mean there's a there's a lot there. So I mean, I think first of all, like uh, you know the arguments like this strike many people as just being um, fallacious and bad, right? So uh, often this kind of argument's used as an example of like the the bandwagon fallacy where it's like um, where the idea there, I think, is this sort of confusion. like well, just because some people believe it doesn't mean that it's true, It doesn't follow that it's got to be true, it could still be false yeah um well and of course I mean because your your evidence never uh or at least very rarely guarantees or entails the truth uh of the thing that it's evidence for um so that's where I think the 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 fallacy sort of issue kind of is misunderstanding what's going on with these with these sorts of um arguments or cases, so I do think the what's at issue is what is it rational for us to believe, but that that's not you know entirely divorced from what's true because what it's rational to believe it's what it's rational to believe is true so yeah um, it's not making anything true for sure the world is the way that the world is mm-hmm. and i mean the way i think we're just doing our best with the information we have to get our best sort of like cognitive map of what the world actually is and the best way to do that is to follow our evidence yeah. and you know our evidence is still fallible it's not you know, it's incomplete, it's imperfect, and it doesn't guarantee that the world matches, um, you know, the way it indicates. But we can't do any better in terms of getting at the world, I think, than following what our what our evidence says. So, I mean, that's where I think, you know, our goal as to in being good believers is to follow our evidence, right, and yeah. believe in accordance with our evidence. And if the world's the world ends up not being that way, well, then okay, I mean, okay, well, what else? What else could we have done? um, then, then go with the way, uh, with what our evidence suggests.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, that's really good. Um, that's, that's really, that's really helpful. One, one thing that I was, I was thinking of when I first came upon, uh, like Feldman and, and this type of stuff was if, um, it's contested, I think when, uh, when people started thinking the earth is round instead of uh, flat and it, it some people say look we can go all the way back people thought the earth was a sphere or whatever so um whatever the case let's say in like 500 uh AD or something let's say like most people thought it was flat and um and i come to believe that it's it's round like 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 it is now you know it's not perfect sphere okay. whatever yeah, 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 but i but yeah. i came to believe that um but everyone else thinks it's flat um i have this true belief um uh I guess we'd have to we'd have to talk about like the how I discovered that or something for it to be uh, justified. But I don't know. Can we stipulate that it's justified? Maybe. Um, would would the ev- like would it be rational? Sorry to bring you back to that rational stuff, but would it be rational for me to to believe that even though all of my peers um, say that it that I'm I'm wrong?
1: Yeah, I th- I mean I think in most ways of filling that out, the answer is no. So okay, um, in part because of what I take to be the epistemic significance of disagreement right so when there's this there's this very powerful evidence which is like scientific consensus against you Mm -hmm. um now in that case it was misleading evidence and so you had the truth um but you can have a true true belief and not be rational and you can have a rational belief uh, and it not be true right so what i would say in the flat earth uh cases you know those people People back then were believing exactly as they should. They were being rational. They were they were following their evidence. Their evidence misled them. Uh, and, you know, and we get, we have better evidence, and we're in a better uh, we're in a better situation now. Um, but they they still had rational beliefs. I mean, yeah. so what, one kind of I think what you're maybe you're hinting at is the one kind of tricky part is like how does this maybe goes back to the Sorites series too? Is how does that then shift? Right. So if you have this sort of like consensus scientific right. opinion. And then someone comes around, and starts out as an outlier. I think, you know, their, their beliefs kind of aren't justified. Their, their interpretation or their way of seeing the evidence isn't justified then um, because it goes against um, the consensus opinion. But at some point it becomes justified, right? Because now we're all justified in believing that the earth's roughly spherical, right? Now, when, when exactly did that happen? You know, did it have to, you know, at what, when did the scale sort of tip over? I think those are kind of those are those are kind of tough questions. But one thing I would just at least say is that even though you know, I guess you're you're the you're the spherical discoverer in this case. So okay. even though um I think you're not justified in your belief, I think you're still rational in carrying out your research program. It's still a good thing for you to be defending ah, okay. your belief to be okay. um Making the case for your belief trying to convince other people so that that project I think is still a rational project for yeah. you to take on even if your belief That you're correct isn't justified for you.
0: Yeah, that's good, man So i'm i'm taking a philosophy of science class right now, and uh, I think maybe lakatosh talks about that with like it's like Yeah, keep keep on with the scientific project even if um Maybe maybe popper talks about that too like Okay. Yeah, that's that's really good so um, I think one, one more thing that would that would really help me here is if um, – have you seen the old Willy Wonka movie? I, I've, I've at least
1: seen lots of it. Okay, <laughs> I don't know okay. if I've ever seen the whole thing the whole, the whole way through, but I, okay. I've seen long parts of it.
0: Well, spoiler alert, um, at the end, uh, Wonka gives the factory to Charlie, and they, they fly up through this elevator. And it, it's like – it turns out it can fly through the sky roof and stuff, and it's flying all around – london or wherever they're at um and uh i i just want to like think about if that let's say that's a time machine so it's a sorry okay. to make this all stupid and complicated that's but right. it's uh it's an elevator that can go all around it can fly and, and let's say it's a time machine someone goes back in time i'm in 500 ad grabs me and just shoots me up with them all the way up uh into the you know, stratosphere or whatever and i can see that the earth is round now and then they just zoom me all the way back down um, how does that evidence that I just experienced for myself, like first person, you know, qualia stuff, how does that compare with the the uh, consensus of all my peers? Is that that's stronger evidence? Do, do you know how, how we might go about, you know, adjudicating or weighing those two?
1: Yeah, good. Um, I mean, I think. I mean, I'd hesitate to make sort of any sort of principled claim in terms of like evidence like this always beats evidence like that. Okay. Um, So I mean, I guess I consider myself like a kind of a particularist there. Like, sure, yeah. How the evidence adds up kind of depends about the particular evidence in that in that specific case. And so I wouldn't want to say that like personal experience evidence always trumps consensus evidence or, or or vice versa. In that case, I do think you have very powerful uh evidence. Um and you have good reason to think that no one else around you has that um has that same evidence. Yeah. Right? And so I think in a case like that, you would have reason to go against the consensus because you have good reason to think that you are in a much superior epistemic position than they are. Yeah. Um, because you have access to this information that that they don't. And we you know, have
0: like a, a error theory for them too. Like they they didn't exactly. Yeah. Yeah,
1: exactly. And yeah. a justified error theory. It's not just like we're not like we're just it's not just possible that they're lacking this thing that we have good reason to
0: think that they okay okay all right well this is awesome this has been really helpful uh with my own thought here um so so let's let's jump into the argument a little bit more um i i I just uh i pulled like four of the premises um so maybe i'll just read those kind of hard to do this in a podcast but um but well let's let's do it so premise one the belief that god exists is very prevalent Premise two, God existing is a good explanation for the prevalence of the belief that God exists. Premise three, God existing better explains the prevalence of the belief that God exists than any available rival explanation. And then premise four, therefore, God exists. Um, that's good. I, I like that. Um, do you remember off the top of your head or the, uh, the recycling case, how we might compare and contrast the recycling versus this one?
1: Yeah, good. So. Um, I mean, I think that the general, I mean, I kind of, I stole this format from, uh, from my, from a couple of my epistemology friends who are inference to the best explanation, uh, experts. So the, the idea here is like, this is just a kind of basic core formulation of any sort of inference to the best explanation. So you have some, some data, um, in this case, the belief that God exists, or it could be the belief that, um, the recycling is today. And that's in both cases prevalent. Um, and then the second premise says that the truth of that belief is the best explanation uh, or, or is a good explanation of the, the prevalence of that belief. right? And then premise three adds that there isn't a better explanation. So there's this data. We have a good explanation for why it's the case. There isn't a better explanation for it. So it's the best explanation and it's a good explanation. And so the rational thing for us to believe is uh, the truth of the belief. So God exists or that the recycling is today. So just to go back to the recycling ones, like, um, you know, I, I go out and I see all my neighbors recycling. So I come to believe that most of my neighbors believe that the recycling is today. You now I think to myself, why, why might they believe that? Well, one explanation is that the recycling is today. And that, that'd be a pretty good explanation for why they all believe it. Yeah. Um, it's not the only explanation, right It could be that they were all you know given some deceitful letter by the, the HOA talking about some uh, recycling change or it could be that someone kind of went around and took out their recycling bins against their against their will. Yeah. but those are all possible, but they aren't nearly as good of an explanation um, for why they believe it. And so given that, I think it's rational for me to conclude that the recycling is today. Again, it's not a it's not a guarantee. I could I could still be wrong. Yeah. Um, but it's uh, it's rational for me to believe it.
0: Okay. Yeah, and 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 this um you, you said that this argument is is bolstered by the the new evi- or the new developments in like higher order evidence and um and even thinking about the wisdom of 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 groups, um, evidence of evidence being, you know, evidence and, and all that good stuff. Um what Does this depend on thinking that most people are um, like decent reasoners or, or decent knowers? Like if you had this idea that most people are dumb, uh, yeah. would that change how the argument should affect you?
1: Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, if, if, if people got it wrong more often than they got it right, um, that would be a big problem. Okay. Um, so, yeah, part of the background here is that, you know, while people are still biased people and they still have their cognitive flaws um we still do pretty good right in terms of getting to true beliefs we we still do all right uh, we still hit on things um you know r- roughly accurately now that's one way to kind of resist the argument um is that you know while we get things right regarding say recycling beliefs and things like that our track record regarding you know deep philosophical truths like whether God exists might be a lot worse. And so um, I think that's a powerful objection to the argument that um, maybe regarding matters like this, we don't sort of meet that condition that as individuals we're, you know, we're at least better than 50% at at getting it right.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, so, um, so how, how do we think about how would we analyze that like how would we evaluate um how how good people are at thinking yeah. god thoughts yeah good
1: i mean i think it's a hard question and it's it's hard to evaluate um without sort of like presupposing the answer so like <laughs> well, how good we are regarding our um god's existence beliefs depends on whether god exists right, right. so if, if right. god exists and lots of people believe it then okay we're pretty good at it but if god doesn't exist yeah. um, then we're pretty bad at it um so it's kind of hard you know to make a, a compelling case there i think one way or the other is kind of satisfying to people um on the other side
0: yeah well you you mentioned um planning earlier and his you know warranted christian belief stuff um he, he makes this this uh he, he at the at the outset he's like look uh there's two ab- objections yeah. de facto and de jure and he's saying like i'm I'm after the de jure like this is this is rational rational to believe if god is uh existing if god exists then it's okay if not then then it changes and so uh i wonder if it's if that's analogous to, to what we're talking about here as well
1: yeah good um I can see that connection. That's a nice connection. So I, I do see that, you know, the case might be sort of bolstered if we also assume that it's true that God exists, because then we might be able to build more into um, our reliability or our, our goodness at evaluating evidence for God's existence. Yeah. Um, to, to play the other side. So, I mean, one sort of, I guess, worry I have with the argument. I mean, I should say first, like, I'm not, I wouldn't say that I'm like, uh, A supporter of the argument so i mean i think it's a i think it's a super interesting argument and it's Mm -hmm. definitely shortchanged uh so it deserves more credit than it's than it's given but i wouldn't call myself an endorser of the argument i uh i like thinking about it but i wouldn't say that it, it, it actually uh succeeds i think there's enough sort of worries uh in the neighborhood and this is one of the worries um having to do with how how, how reliable or how good we are at forming beliefs like this. So mm. even if we assume God exists and so the fact that most people believe it shows that we're kind of reliable, uh, along that line, there's so much religious disagreement yeah. on related issues so about what God is like or, you know, various other, um, religious claims or philosophical claims. I think more generally <laughs> that gives us a good, A good reason to sort of question how good we are at figuring out things like this yeah um so i think there's a there's a pretty strong uh reason there to to think that maybe we aren't um more accurate than not when it comes to either religious things or um philosophical things more generally
0: yeah that's a that's a really good point and um I actually I actually like that you aren't the gung ho like this is the end all because it seems like you're just like, hey, let, let's just bolster this argument. Let's just see like how far this goes. And most people are like, that's bandwagon. You write it off in your intro to philosophy class. And is it? Let's see. Let's do some hard work. I love that kind yeah. of philosophy. Um, some people might think, well, that's sophistry. And it's like, well, I more sophistry just to write it off without yeah, exactly. it, its proper due.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's right. But I mean, what I was I at least mentioned before is I think what's uh, fascinating to me is how many issues, you know, kind of bump up against the common consent argument. So there's yeah. is, there's issues about divine hiddenness, there's issues about higher order evidence and the wisdom of the crowd, there's issues about cognitive science of religion, there's right. issues, uh, there's all these sort of like hot button issues, all kind of uh intersect with the common consent argument in ways that i think they don't regarding like the cosmological argument or the ontological Mm -hmm. argument so i think that's an additional reason i think to to be a little more interested in this argument is because it lets you also think alongside all these other interesting issues in the philosophy of religion
0: yeah so something i just I, i think that's right and and uh to to keep going on that theme I just kind of discovered the, the pro theism, anti theism debates of like, should you want God to exist or should you not want mm. God to exist? You know, uh, couching, setting aside whether he, he does or not. And um, I thought this might have some implications there as well. Like, if you, if uh, you might be a pro theist and think you're a pro theist because you want common consent not to disprove the rationality of humanity. Like, if 80, if 80% or 90% of human beings believe in God uh, and like you should, maybe you don't want everyone to be idiots. Maybe, maybe that's a consideration that you, that you, you go into your theorizing. Like, I kind of want there to be a God so that, yeah, not everyone's dumb.
1: Yeah. Interesting. So you took me, you took, you took me for a turn. I wasn't expecting you to go. I thought you were going to say maybe the reason why people um, so many people believe God exists is because they want, god to exist right? oh yeah so that's a possible sort of like debunking explanation yeah yeah, against the common kind of right. yeah you kind of turn it the other way around maybe which is maybe we want the god to exist so that we have this better view about human rationality which is which is interesting i like that
0: well i i i've been talking to too many epistemologists i think and uh and they're like, not possible <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome well I used to have, I used to have much, uh, a much harder view on like um, people who didn't study philosophy, I guess, cause I studied it and I thought I was awesome. And one of my epistemologist friends studying to, uh, at Northwestern to be, uh, to get his PhD in, in epistemology or an emphasis there. And he's like, look, dude, I think people aren't as dumb as sometimes we think in philosophy classes. Like I, I want to think that, yeah, generally speaking, like we can use inductive inferences and come to pretty good conclusions, I don't want to think everyone's dumb and and it, hearing him say that kind of changed my mind. So that's what made me think like, yeah, I don't yeah. want everyone to be an idiot. I think.
1: Yeah. I, yeah. Uh,
0: another, another related thing that, that um, uh, came up for me was in, in the God conversations. Sometimes people, sometimes my, my, uh, my atheist friends or agnostic friends will, will they'll look at like the, the argument for God from so many arguments Type view. And they say, look, you, you know, cumulative case of a cumulative case, right? Like all these arguments. And they say, look, the, these have different conclusions. Some are, are for a uh, classical theistic God, some are for neoclassical, some are for, you know, Aristotle's thought thinking thought or whatever. And uh, I, I thought this, this brings in this argument. Another thing it bumps on uh, is like rigid designators and definite descriptions. Like when you, when you say God, if you have like this rigid designator, then okay, it's just whatever entity all these things are referring to. And maybe John Hick comes in and says, yeah, it's a greater, you know, like impersonal reality, whatever. Um, but if you have like a definite description, then maybe even like the God of Calvinism is different than Arminianism, is different than open theism. And, and then your models might be different too. So I just thought that that's another area of uh, another emphasis that that this brings in, sucks in, and you have to get clear on all this stuff. It's really fun to to think through because of one argument here
1: yeah no definitely i mean i didn't even touch on that issue but that's that's a good one too i mean that's that gets seen a little bit in terms of it's really hard i think to find good data about how prevalent um theistic belief is and part because it's really hard to get clear on that question right to make sure we're all talking about the same thing not talking right. past each other and you know even you know a lot of a lot of the data is about whether you are you know part of some religious tradition or something where these right. open, you could be part of that tradition without having this belief, you know, for that that's a, that's a possibility there too. Oh, yeah. So I think it's, it's, it's a hard thing to get precise on though. I do think there's enough information that sort of like does lend good credence to the idea that the belief that there, I mean, I think the more generally you make it, the stronger the case is going to be right. So right. that there's some, that there's a divine being is going to get, a lot more uh, common consent than there's a being that's omniscient, omnipotent and, and holy good, which is a narrower one. But even that one still, I think is going to, is going to have, there's a big, there's a pretty um, big group of people that, that are on board there.
0: Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. One, one cool fact that I I grabbed, there's a lot of cool facts, but one that was just kind of random was um, you mentioned uh, who wants to be a millionaire. And the, this was nuts to me. The audience poll, did much better. Uh, it was a much better strategy to go with the audience than to call an expert friend. And it was like 95% to 65%. And it, it just kind of shows, which, oh man, I don't know. I still have to think about this more cause I don't trust crowds really, but it shows like that the crowd was a better choice yeah. than an expert.
1: There's another example. that's really good. I like that, that one's really great. I don't think I put this one in the paper, but there's another famous, um, experiment where are I think it's counting jelly beans in a jar oh yeah and so everyone I think you did
0: put this one in, yeah, did I put it in there? okay I so everyone
1: so. kind of everyone gives their guess of how many jelly beans are in the jar and the the average response did better than all but one of the individual guesses yeah crazy so, uh yeah it's 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 uh that sort of social psychology stuff is really fascinating to me i've only really sort of like began dipping my toe into those waters but yeah. uh, it's definitely interesting and it, it does go to show that the crowds have a lot more going for them yeah. uh, than we often give them credit for.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so you've said like, you know, this isn't, you were approached to, to make this, uh, to write this argument uh, up in the way that you did. So it's not, yeah, it's not like you did your dissertation on it and you want to, your, every your whole uh, livelihood is staked on it. <laughs> but, but do you find a uh, significant difference between what, we hear as the uh informal you know bandwagon fallacy versus uh common consent is there like significant difference in in, in what it what would that be if there is
1: i don't i mean i don't know that there i mean the only i don't know i really hate informal fallacies i think okay I, uh i think they're dangerous and we shouldn't we shouldn't uh i think that we shouldn't be teaching them cuz i think it just equips people to just Quickly label and uh, dismiss arguments or or, um, reasons or people without uh, without giving them their sufficient due. Sure. And I think often where there's a fallacy, there's something true and good in the neighborhood, right? That that's why it became a fallacy. If if it was just a terrible way to think, it wouldn't have caught on to be a popular way of kind of going bad. So there has to, I think, there's often something sort of true or a good way to reason in the neighborhood and i think that's the case here i mean i think you know the whenever i see the bandwagon fallacy sort of discussed or why it's a problem it's always this sort of refrain of well just because the group thinks so it doesn't mean that it's true the group could be wrong which you know of course the group could be wrong so i mean <laughs> right. i don't i don't think anyone should think as long as the group says so i've definitely I <laughs> definitely have a true belief so i think um if that's what the fallacy is, is being sort of like certain or thinking that the group somehow makes the conclusion true, that's a mistake. But I think that's not, that's not typically what's going on. Mm-hmm. Usually it's this more modest claim of, well, going with what the group says um, can be really good evidence to think that something's true. Again, it's not infallible. It's not perfect. doesn't make your conclusion certain. Yeah. But uh, it's, you know, it's what we have to go on.
0: Yeah, so that's actually really similar to what my friend said. Well, uh, when we, when we were talking about informal fallacies and he was like, yeah, like there is a good yeah, exactly what you said, there's a good line of reasoning close within the proximity otherwise so many people wouldn't do it. And I think you make a good point about that too about like cuz people often say like begging the question and they they hardly ever use it in the right, right. way. Well, that begs the question. You're like that's right. not quite, yeah. you know, but uh but even even like begging the question the, the real way to do it uh it's an informal fallacy and, and some epistemologists are like hey look there's there's some times where epistemic circularity is is justified maybe and it's it you can yeah. you can defend it at least even if you think it's wrong
1: yeah no I mean that's where I mean I'm of the school like look put put the argument uh number the premises mm. number the conclusion and then if you want to object to it, you have two two ways to do it. Either one of those conclusions isn't reasonable – or one of the premises isn't reasonable to believe, or the conclusion doesn't follow. So those those are your two ways to dismiss the argument. I and mean, I think uh, all the informal fallacies and labeling and uh, uh, just kind of get in the way or they're like a lazy way of right. actually addressing the argument. Well, which premise are we rejecting then? Which, one, which one's false? Or yeah. why does the conclusion not follow? You should be able to – I think – give the objection in one of those ways. And I think the, the informal fallacy is just distracting window dressing. I'd say it's a red herring, but then I'd be doing (laughs) the very thing that, uh, that I don't (laughs) say not to do. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, and actually I I discovered this because I did, I wanted the shortcut. I wanted to cheat. Like I, I wanted to be able to, I'll memorize the Latin because that'll make me sound smart. And then Petitio, you know, print it, whatever. Um, but, but yeah, some, the problem was I was, I was studying maybe more debate books too than, than like straight up logic books, but I would tell someone, Hey, look, man, that's a red herring or you're big. And they, and they didn't know enough logic yeah, to say, why, why exactly. is that a problem? And I wouldn't be able to explain it to them. And then I looked like the idiot because I, oh, I, see, I was, I didn't, I couldn't even explain it to them why that was an error. Yeah.
1: See, I usually see it the other way around where it's a kind of more of like an intellectual bullying where you're just like, yeah that's a red herring or that's an ad hominem. And then your, your interlocutors like, I don't know what to do with that. So I'm just disengaging or I'm yeah. walking away or I'm just conceding yeah. that I'm making some mistake that I don't really understand. Yeah. And so it's not, you're not, you're not, you know, furthering fruitful dialogue. You're right. just, uh, uh, alienating your your interlocutor
0: yeah. so well and well that's what i was doing and yeah. every now and then someone was smart enough to be like well what, what do you mean by that or why is that a problem like crap dude what kind of, <laughs> that's what we're supposed to you're supposed to think that's a problem yeah yeah that's a good point hey, that's man. another that's ad hominem <laughs>
1: right. that's just right. double down
0: <laughs> yeah abusive ad. yeah right circumstantial um yeah okay so so you bring up uh you, you talked to in your objections, you brought in even more and you said, look, there's even more connections and, in, in, uh you know, fill fill religion type, type arguments lately. So you, you brought in like hiddenness. Um, how does, how does hiddenness uh, relate to uh, common consent?
1: Good. So the common consent argument is, you know, kind of it's, it's datum that it's kind of working with us. Look how prevalent theistic belief is, which is kind of, you know, in some sense, funny, given the problem of divine hiddenness, because the problem of divine hiddenness says, well, if God really existed, everyone would believe it, or at least many more people would believe it, there would be no irrational, non culpable lack of belief, anyone who didn't believe would either be irrational or blameworthy for for not believing. So if God existed, we shouldn't expect there to be, you know, 70 80% of people believe in god we should expect there to be you know 99 or 100 you know 100% um right. so that the the actual numbers count against god's existence rather than for god's existence um mm-hmm. it would be the the angle of divine hiddenness and i think you know i think the problem of divine hiddenness is obviously it's a it's a good thorny um philosophical problem um but it's not i mean it's not clear to me what we should think both about it and how how we should think of it in terms of this argument. So one of the, I guess the main thing uh, I think here is that even if we should expect there to be more theistic belief than there is, if God really existed, it still could be that there's a lot more theistic belief than we should expect if God didn't exist. And so it still could kind of push us to the explanation that god exists so the analogy um that i use uh in the paper and it's one that i i talked with uh thomas Bogaris, actually i think <laughs> helped equip me with with this one but imagine you know you hire a, a gardener to take care of the the weeds um in your yard and you go away for a vacation you come back and given that you hired a gardener you expect there to be next to no weeds um in your yard it turns out there's still let's say like 10 percent of, of the weeds or 20 percent of the weeds that's more, it's a lot more weeds than you would expect. Yeah. But it's still a lot less weeds than you'd expect if the gardener hadn't been there at all. Oh yeah. Right. So what best explains that there are 20% of the weeds in your, in your yard that the gardener was there, mm. right. Um, you still would want less and you should still expect less, but it still points to the gardener having been there as opposed to pointing to the gardener, not having been there. Yeah. So I think the relevant thing to do in the hiddenness is to kind of, have these two contrasting these two contrasting points, which is how much belief should we expect if God existed and how much belief should we expect if God didn't exist and then both of those are really hard to figure out too so yeah, that, but right. that's it. they're both hard to figure out and then what matters I think is the contrastive claim about which one of those um better fits the distribution of opinion that we actually have in in the world
0: yeah yeah that's that's really good and and to go back to the analogy of the gardener um well at least with, with Schellenberg, he is he is baking in the uh the quality of the gardener right and it's like is this evidence that there was a good gardener here cuz like yeah maybe 20% would be like oh, that's a, a bad gardener would miss 20% of uh, the weeds but not a good gardener and so you're like well let's just talk about a gardener and then if you want to go in to the character now we'd have to say well what about a really good gardener who knows that if he poisoned one weed and left it then it would it would spread to the other weeds and actually leaving 20% is a really good method if you're an amazing gardener so maybe you have evidence yeah. against a a bad gardener or a good And so now we're back to the character of god instead of saying you know let's just look at or the character of the the gardener let's just look at the existence of a gardener and going a step back so
1: yeah so i mean i i guess i i don't think that whatever we think about the common consent argument is going to solve the problem of divine hiddenness i mean i think yeah, no right. matter what you think about the common consent argument you're still going to want to have something to say yeah, about sure. why theistic belief isn't more prevalent, mm-hmm. um, but I do think there is this sort of at least defense of the common consent argument from the problem of divine hiddenness, which is like even though that's still a problem and we haven't yeah. said anything to like solve that, there's at least a reason to, I think to prevent it from blocking um, this argument at least entirely.
0: Yeah that's really cool it's there's kind of like a dialectic of like yeah you start with hiddenness and then you get over to common consent and now we can go into the nature and character of god and and up and up and up we go it's kind of yeah cool.
1: i mean that that's another one of those ways where there's so many things just kind of connect to this argument which i know i didn't i didn't think of or see ahead of time which is like as the more i looked into it's like oh look there's a connection to this there's a connection to that which is that, yeah. so really kind of fun
0: yeah well we, we've we already talked a little bit about debunking args, uh arguments but um yeah what do what do you make about um yeah wish fulfillment and and like Freud Marx Nietzsche the the three horsemen or whatever
1: Yeah I mean I'm certainly uh, uh you know I'm certainly not an expert there I mean I think the most I've really read or engaged in in those debates was going back to the the playing a book and his sort of deal with it yeah. I mean I think there are kind of hard um, issues coming from cognitive science I do think probably the most pressing one um, are the more evolutionary arguments to deal with, um, you know, cognitive, you know, cognitive mechanisms in us that are sort of, been, that have been adaptive, that also sort of train us to look for agency, where there perhaps is an agency. Mm-hmm. And so it could be that belief in God is better explained as a byproduct of these adaptive cognitive faculties. I mean, I think there's a, there's a interesting, hard argument there. I mean, I think uh, there's a lot of sort of evolutionary debunking arguments regarding not just theistic belief, but moral, ethical beliefs, yeah. moral beliefs, philosophical beliefs. Um, I'm not convinced that they work, but I do think that they are, they're, they're difficult challenges there.
0: And that that's like uh, the hyperactive agency detective device, right? Like it's,
1: yeah, it's, I think that's right. H H A D D. Had. Yeah, or something. had yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: Yeah. We look, we look for And, when I first heard that one, it, it it really freaked me out. I think I heard about it when I was in, in undergrad. And then, um, you know, other guys like Tyler McNabb would be like, "Well, that's good, man. If God existed, of course he'd he'd put that in us. He'd want us to recognize agency and stuff like that. What kind of God would not do that?" And I was like, "Oh, so it, it yeah, it comes to interpretation again."
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on you know how how active i think we want to think of this device right so i mean yeah. obviously um the kinds of cases that get used like obviously it can go more like so if you if you hear a rustling in a bush you know it could be the wind or it could be a predator so you're you know you're better off thinking it's a predator because you're not you're not going to be eaten right whereas you know you're wrong once and you're you're dead your <laughs> dinner so yeah um you know how often you know this is now I'm going to talk more externalist like, but how, you know, how reliable this process is might, might matter at least for, you know, for externalists. Um, The other, the other sort of like response um, that I like to this concern is thinking about um, I I guess two things, one being the persistence of theistic belief. So it's one thing to think about how Hmm. a belief came to be and it's another another thing to think about how the belief kind of stuck around so even if beliefs kind of sort of came to be by a suspect mechanism um, why did they not go away so i mean i think that gives us at least reason to think um, that there are one either other faculties involved in our relevant beliefs whether they be theistic beliefs or or moral beliefs it's like think of the moral parallel like maybe we believe these things about cooperation because of some evolutionary um, story right but we still believe them and we've kept believing them so you know maybe that's because um we have other faculty other rational faculties that also support these same Uh, conclusions,
0: right
1: and so what best explains why we continue to believe uh as opposed to you know it's going back to the bush analogy so you know once you kind of uh you stop believing there's a predator in the bush eventually, right? If it's just if it just kind of keeps moving, or or you get other reasons to think that it's just the wind, um, the the belief that it's a predator goes away. It doesn't stick with you forever once it kind of gets into your head. Yeah. So there's a, I think there's a potential at least response there uh, on behalf of the the theist for why the evolutionary story doesn't at least totally debunk um, religious belief.
0: Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, inference to the best explanation is doing a lot of work and I, I think that's good um, and, I, and I like it. Uh, one thing that, that kind of freaked me out, which I think an epistemologist can help me with is uh, I read Peter Lipton's work a couple years back um, and just he made this is an off, offhand comment about like by by definition, you know uh, the best explanation is not the true definition. Or explanation. Sorry, the, by definition, the best explanation is not the the true explanation. It's just the best one out of all the the rivals. And I just got this like weird uh, skeptical thought of like, well, then it doesn't like tell us you know truth. It tells us what's best. And there, yeah, there could be all these other options and stuff like that. Um, and that's certainly been the case in in history when we we look back and we laugh at them now for thinking the earth was you know turtles all the way down or whatever. Um. <laughs> as an epistemologist man maybe you can help me out what um we're just if if we have if we use inference to the best explanation to think that this is the true explanation for why the pizza is not in a refrigerator like we that's justified right like we can say like that's good evidence for me to believe that and so i can take that to be true not just take it as if it's true right yeah right
1: yeah i mean i think uh if if it didn't give you that it wouldn't be doing uh what it needs to do right so yeah. i think the whole point of an inference to the best explanation is to deliver a justified belief to, to make you rational in believing the conclusion i mean i'll just kind of point out one other sort of objection that people have is um you know the best might not be so impressive if it's the best of a bad lot totally so yeah you know the the best singer on american idol might be a terrible <laughs> still be a terrible singer but they're right. the best of the, of that group and so that's the reason I formulated the argument um, as I did in the paper is to kind of build in it's not just the best, it also has to be a good explanation. Yeah. So I think inferences of the best explanation are only going to really work if it's not just the best, but also does a really good job. If you're if you if you're the best explanation, but you're still a pretty crummy explanation, then I think you're probably not gonna be uh, justified and believing it on that basis. Yeah. But in the case of like both the recycling belief, um, and, you know, possibly in the theistic belief case, the, the, a good explanation is that um, God exists or that recycling comes out today.
0: Um, yeah, I, I think of uh, I came home from a tournament once. I, I grew up wrestling I wrestled throughout throughout college. And I, I came back from one in middle school or something. And I told my dad, like, I got fourth place. He's like, oh, cool, man. Great, good job. Like, out of how many? And I was like, <laughs> well, out of five and he's like that's eh, not as good right it's it's, it's it's not that good it's better than five i guess yeah um but when it comes to um i like that condition of being a good explanation because if there's only a couple of really like terrible explanations, you ask the best but it's the best of the worst well uh, what are some things we can use to you know, like analyze good like or or, or qualify something as a, as a good explanation on top of the best
1: Yeah, good. I mean, that's a hard question. So, I mean, I think, uh, you know, one of the big debates um, around this issue is even just what counts as good making features of an explanation. And so, you know, there's a there's a lot of literature on that sort of what sort of theoretical virtues are there. Simplicity and all those things. Exactly. So, I mean, I think uh, it's not always kind of sort of clear cut. Um, and there's, there's some disagreement there, but yeah, things like simplicity are often cited, things like explanatory power, things like coherence, sometimes, you know, fit with our background beliefs. So these are all sort of things that can be used as a kind of like metric for how good, uh, an explanation is. But again, there's not, I mean, I don't think there's any sort of, um, nice, neat formula where you can just kind of like plug in plug in the scores for a theory and then it comes out as, a, you know, good, not good or, or exactly how good, how good it is. So a lot of that's going to be sort of our, you know, in, intuitive judgments there and our you know, I think there too, it's going to depend on agreement and disagreement, people thinking about the theor- you know, the different theories and what they come to think of um, their, their sort of theoretical goodness.
0: Yeah okay all the all the uh hardcore Bayesians are tearing their hair out right now we have a formula for this
1: <laughs> i know that that was a kind of a veiled shot you picked it out <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's awesome. um well uh john this has been this has been super helpful for me man i i think uh you've you've I've been secretly using you to uh, to help me with this philosophy of science paper, uh, which is really helpful on inference, the best explanation. So it's, it's genuinely helped me uh, in, in major ways, but I, I appreciate the the work you've done on this paper too. Um, and, and representing common consent well, and, and doing a good job of um, introducing people to it, but bolstering a little bit and then showing, Hey, there's more work to be done. Someone can take this. If if you like this argument a lot, like there's much more that can be done and really cool stuff especially to kind of trigger people who really hate it and do it in a way that, um, is fun. So that you'll, you'll get them responding to you in with, you know, tons of notes. And now we get yeah. to elevate <laughs> the whole conversation.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, that was kind of the, the motivation behind the, the project too, is, you know, when you look at, you know, collections, uh, you know, books or volumes on arguments for and against God's existence, you know, very rarely does the, uh, does this argument get, get an appearance. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think if we can think about it more, get more people thinking about it, then I think, given the argument, that's going to give us better reason, or it's going to enrich our evidential pool in terms of like what we should, what we should think about the issues that are sort of represented here.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm, I meant to wrap it up. I got one more for it because you okay. just raised it. So, so, so let's say we take common consent, and we're like, this provides evidence for for the belief that God exists. And yet I am a philosophy of religion student and most of my peers and even superiors think this is a bad argument. Um, does that, do we, now do we have like, a, who, who do I prioritize more, my, my peer group or the rest of the world?
1: So are, are you thinking of the case about their view about the argument itself?
0: Yeah, they think, yeah. The, they think the argument doesn't work. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: So that's the last objection I consider in the paper. Like, isn't, oh, nice. isn't yeah. this... Uh, argument self defeating in this kind of interesting sense. Okay. Most people don't think it's a good argument. Yeah. So if we should sort of like believe in line with what most people think, then most people say this argument's a bad way to reason, and so we shouldn't follow. We shouldn't follow the argument. Yeah. Um, I think so. I think self defeating objections are totally fascinating. Like they're they're yes. fun to think about, and yes. they and they make your head spin. They make oh. my head spin. Um, I do think it raises an, uh, a good challenge. I mean, I, I do think uh, that does raise a problem. Um, but again, I think this, it, it parallels a problem just in the disagreement literature, right? Which is that, you know, if people, if disagreement gives you, say, a reason to suspend judgment, well, people disagree about what you should do about disagreement. And so that view, too, sort of like reflects uh-huh. on itself and says, well, then ought, ought you not give up your own view about disagreement? And so, I mean, I think in the disagreement case, the answer there too is yeah. So the, the, huh. truth of, the truth of the view gives you a reason not to hold the view or Holy makes it gosh. irrational for you to hold the view. And I think the same thing could be true here. The goodness of the argument could give you a reason not to um, believe the argument's a good argument. Um, so I think there's a there's – a, sense in which it's self-defeating that sense isn't showing that it's a bad way to reason it's just showing that it would not be rational for you to right. think it's a good way to reason
0: yeah yeah that's that's so good and I that, that that's a really good uh, distinction because it's not self-refuting it's not necessarily right. false it's just self-defeating so that it's not it might not be rational to believe even if it is the case right right
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's awesome.
0: Yeah. Well, um, so it's funny that that you were approached to do this chapter, and that you don't consider yourself like a super defender, because, um, as I was reading this book, uh, one of my friends, Chad McIntosh, uh, a really good philosopher himself, he was writing a review of the book, and I asked him, "What what do you think of the best ones?" And he said, "Yours, uh, oh, wow. William Lane okay. Craig's, and then um, the ramification, ramified, uh, argument. I, I forgot what it is, um." And so I just want to encourage you man like it's, awesome. it turned out to be in, in at least one philosopher's opinion one one of the best in the entire uh in the entire book.
1: Cool. I I appreciate that. It's humbling there's, there's a lot of good essays in that book.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's an amazing book. Um I recommend everyone uh, saves up for the next couple of years and then <laughs> buys it.
1: <laughs> That's the thing. I I hate the prices of these. I mean, uh
0: Yeah. Yeah, That's it is what it is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it'll come out in paperback like in a while or something and everyone can afford it. Well, uh, John, man, so if someone wants to continue on and uh, reading some more of your stuff, do you, do you got a uh, website where they can follow up with you?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, anyone could email me. I'm happy to send out any papers, including this one. I mean, all, all my papers are up on the Phil Papers uh, database as well. So everything's there. Um, but yeah, feel free to send me an email. I'm happy to correspond with whoever and send a paper or... Uh, be
0: happy to. Awesome, man. This is huge. Well, uh, I I seriously appreciate you coming on and helping me grow as a thinker. Um, That's going to have to do it for now, folks. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.